4: The Michael Reed Show Podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie
2: Monday morning, the 14th of March. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reed on LMFM. The Irish war effort is a predominantly humanitarian effort. Our primary
4: impulse is to assist those fleeing war. Um, and, um, and that's, you know, the, the Irish people are very seized by this atro- the, the, the series of atrocities that are going on. What we're witnessing on our screens every evening is really shocking people and there's huge human empathy there, obviously to help the women and the children.
2: The Taoiseach, Mihal Martin speaking to the BBC Sunday morning program yesterday, but on the ground in Ukraine, the president uh, Volodymyr Zelensky wants more than a humanitarian response.
4: NATO should protect us in specific things which depend specifically from NATO, and we haven't uh, received that.
2: Zelensky is defined, but he also wants help to fight Russia. Nobody
4: really knows what happens tomorrow. I'm not wishing this... uh, to anyone. I can repeat again and again because uh, this is about life. People are
2: dying. In the Vatican this weekend, Pope Francis prayed for peace.
5: In the name of God, please stop this massacre.
2: We're now 19 days into this war where people in Western Ukraine felt safer than perhaps others did in the country. But the military base that was struck by Russia yesterday is on the road from Lviv to the Polish border. 15 miles away, 15 miles away, in other words, from the NATO border that is Poland. And Zelensky wants help fighting Russia to bring about peace.
6: I repeat again, if you do not close our sky, it is only a matter of time before Russian missiles fall on your territory. NATO territory on the homes of citizens of NATO countries.
2: The terror of this war has been captured by BBC World Service in Mariupol, where there's been sustained shelling for over a week now.
1: Women and children went down the basement. Then the shell landed in the yard, and we were buried in the cellar. (laughs) Two children could not be saved. When will this all end? We don't know where to run. Who will bring our children back?
2: The voices of women beneath uh, the rubble asking that very pertinent question when will all of this end? That recording from the BBC World Service let's speak uh, to the Minister for European Affairs Thomas Byrne who's on the line Uh, I'm not sure that you or anybody at this stage Minister would uh, attempt to answer that question
0: No, I mean there's nobody I think can really look into the mind of Vladimir Putin but I think the most important thing is that the Western world is as united as it can be um, I think that we are um, certainly in support of Ukraine and giving the help that we think is appropriate in each individual case. In some cases, that is military help that's going. In other cases, like us, it's uh, humanitarian support as well. Uh, that's what we can do. But I mean, you know, the, the, the reality is that unless Putin himself decides uh, to end this, this is not going to end. So that's that's why we're putting the squeeze uh, on Russia as much as we can. I mean, their stock market has closed. The ruble has worth. I think it's worth an American cent now rather than a dollar. Um, things are collapsing very economically but the question is will the russian people see this for what it is they're not seeing it on the television screens that's for sure and the way that we are uh, and when they realize that the cause of their suffering is not the west it's not america it's not nato uh, but the cause of their suffering is vladimir putin um, and that realization has to happen within russia and that's a difficult realization i think for them to have
2: how much weight would you give uh, to the peace talks that are underway Look, um, it's, it's
0: hard to know. I think you'd really need to be a military analyst, quite frankly. The thing is so complicated, but I think they're happening. Russia is not, a, not advancing as much as maybe it has hoped. Uh, it's a very proud country. So there may well be an opportunity for Russia to kind of strategically kind of roll back. I sincerely hope there will be uh, because there's certain point, look, they're certainly quite... Look, they're causing a huge amount of indiscriminate damage uh, to Ukraine. I think it's obviously horrifying us. I think if the Russians knew exactly what was happening, I think they'd be horrified too. Um, so there is a chance for Putin, I think, to decide he's gone far enough. I mean, Putin's only objective is to stay in power. I don't think he cares about NATO. I don't think he cares about America, Russian people, Ukrainians. He wants to stay in power, Um, and I suppose he'll, he'll be judging well of a risk to his power at the moment and that's why we're trying to put the squeeze
2: on as much as we can Okay and uh, that mood in Russia where people understand what's going on is adding to a a refugee crisis it it seems Uh, apart from the 2.5 million people who've fled the Ukraine at this stage some 200,000 Russians are are said to to have left the country and many more undoubtedly will follow suit Uh, but uh, as you say there is military assistance being given by our European partners or at least some of them to Ukraine, and we are part of that overall package. Uh, Russia said over the weekend uh, that countries that assist Ukraine militarily could be seen as legitimate targets. Uh, Do you think that we could be seen in that light?
0: No, I don't think so. I mean, of course, nobody can predict what what Putin is is going to do, but we've got to stand on the right side of this. We're, We're not taking part in a military alliance. We basically don't have military equipment to give them. Yes, we have some, but we essentially have very little. Um, And our focus has been on humanitarian help and on protective help as well. I mean, there will be some military help going into Ukraine from Ireland, but it will be the form of things like helmets or uh, protective equipment or um, just personal protective equipment, etc. That's what will come from Ireland. Um, If there's a target in our head, I don't know. Um, I'd say it's highly unlikely. I think that would be a major miscalculation by Putin. He's used a huge amount of his army to go into Ukraine as it is, and I would guess that he would certainly try and bluff uh, the rest of the Western world, but his capabilities to do that, I would think, is limited. But again, these are these are big questions that we didn't have to really consider. Certainly, we had the luxury of not considering, um, uh, you know, in the, in the last few years in much of the Western world
2: will ireland take a, a position on as to whether there should be that support given that we're not going to give that support ourselves but on the other hand you've uh, the ukrainian president asking uh, for a no-fly
1: zone
0: well a no-fly zone is kind of above our station really for anyone in the irish government it's not something that we would ever be participating in the decision making on so that would be a matter for for other countries but that is a major escalation yes they're asking for us and i have to say looking at it from, from outside of that particular debate where I won't ever have to make that decision, um, I think it probably is the best decision by Biden and the Western world at this particular time because it does risk escalating the conflict. The conflict is bad enough, and I don't think that we really want to escalate it. Um, so I'm, I'm satisfied with the decision that those who make these decisions make, um, but really we have no, we have no part or say in saying that because we're not part of NATO. Mm. Um, but it seems to me that it is a wise decision for the moment. A difficult decision, there's no question about that. Um, but a wise decision, and I think people, I, I'm very happy that those in power in the, the global scheme of things um, are not panicking, are not rushing into things that maybe could cause a major backlash, um, but taking things very slowly. And they are providing a huge amount of weaponry uh, to the Ukrainian people as well. mm
2: Uh, It's hard not to wonder if uh, part of uh, the Western strategy is to let Russia think that there will always be resistance because there's resistance in Ukraine, whereas if it was to stand behind Ukraine and stand with Ukraine militarily, now uh, that would be a a different matter altogether uh, because uh, you're looking at a, a situation now where Uh, The Russians uh, can uh, advance slow and all, as that may be, uh, but without that threat of the might of NATO. Uh, And uh, in lieu of that, they may continue with that uh, and uh, they may end up actually uh, doing something like uh, one of uh, those missiles firing uh, beyond where it was meant to and into Poland, which could have very easily been the case over the weekend.
0: Well, like if a missile flew from Russia into Poland or any any other country on the NATO side, I mean, it would have devastating consequences. I think for for all of us. So, it's it's not worth thinking. It's not. It's, it's very difficult to think about that. It's very difficult mm-hmm. to imagine that. Uh, and that's why people have to be very very careful about what they say, what they do, how they react to things. I think there's a certain amount of calm as needed in decision makers in the situation like this, even though that's really really difficult, uh, because we don't want to escalate it uh, any further. Um, and I think look I mean I think there's been a lot of talk about NATO certainly before this invasion started there was a huge amount of people blaming NATO etc I mean NATO was basically Joe Biden and a lot of our Western partners mm. are countries that we're very very close friends with uh, and they're a defensive alliance they don't want war uh, we don't want war um, we're not joining them anytime soon by the way but I, I think this impression that has been given over the last few years that there's some kind of threat or some kind of bad guy um, I think it's been certainly shattered uh, but this particular um, war here, where we see that Russia has simply gone in uh, uninvited into Ukraine, blame NATO. But I think, I think blaming NATO was only a side show for Putin. I mean, this is all about. Uh, Him making uh, this vision of Russia that he and and some others have had throughout Russian history—that it's this great country that needs to be Um, bigger—and that's 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 the difficulty that everybody's in it.
2: But is there an argument uh, that NATO has left uh, the adult male population population of Ukraine as a human shield uh, against a war? with russia uh, a war between nato and russia and that's why it's not intervening because there is uh, that resistance if that resistance uh, wasn't there maybe they would move on elsewhere maybe the war would end maybe nato should be saying to the ukrainians uh, we will help you we will fight this war with you or tell them to surrender in other words
0: well i think look i mean uh, the western powers are given a lot of weapons to the ukrainians but the truth is that if they, if they directly intervene in the war there is no question that will escalate things to a much greater degree uh, than is already the case. And the suffering will be much worse, not just in Ukraine, but in many other countries. Uh, we'd probably have a state of war. So from outside of NATO and looking in at decision-making that's happening, it seems to me that they've they've taken the right decision at the moment. and uh, that undoubtedly is a very difficult decision for people when they're looking at the suffering that's happening there. I mean, I und- have no doubt when this is over, people will look back and say, why didn't he intervene? But it seems to me at the moment, the calculus is very, very finely balanced between helping the Ukrainians as much as they can mm. uh, and preventing further escalation.
2: And what if China intervenes on the Russian side?
0: I, I doubt very much that's going to happen. Mm. Again, you'd have to ask the Chinese, but I doubt very much that's going to happen. Um, that's that's. I mean, this thing has escalated far beyond anyone's imagination up to now. It has put the Russian army itself under huge pressure. They were to have any other incidents in any other part of Russia. Russia is a massive country. Yeah. It's got a tiny, tiny border with NATO. It's got much greater borders with many other countries. Uh, I don't think that's a likely scenario. I think I think a lot of countries who are maybe looking at potential wars in the future will sort of think twice. Of things now and say it's, it's, a, it's a lot easier in theory uh, than putting people out there and eventually they okay. always get back home. And the, the you know the public lose satisfaction with their governments if lots of bodies are coming home and. Yeah. Um, families are affected and all that I know but we're we're, we're living
2: through times where the impossible is happening and we would have thought a couple of weeks ago that it was impossible to have war again in Europe and uh, the American National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan will be speaking to the Russians today and he'll be telling their diplomats that if they do support Russia in any way there will be serious sanctions placed on them by the United States
0: there's no doubt like I mean if any other country gets involved supporting Russia, that they will be sanctioned severely. and that's already happening actually with Belarus. So the European Union is working this week now to expand sanctions on Belarus, uh, as well as potentially on Russia as well. Um, so that will certainly happen in any country. At the, at the moment, there's only a few, said, one, literally one handful of countries that have supported Russia, and they are genuine the basket cases of the world, countries with the, the worst possible regimes, like Belarus, Syria, Eritrea. Uh, they they have supported Russia, and they're not going anywhere fast. A, another set of countries have abstained in any votes in the UN. The likes of China, India, they'd be looking very very carefully as well because they they've seen what the Western world has done uh, with Russia uh, in terms of the economy, and that's not something they want for their for for their own country. So I, I wouldn't foresee uh, an escalation of this beyond this. We've seen what Russia's been doing uh, on the Ukrainian border for the last number of months. Uh, it was obvious, certainly obvious to me in December and my mother said it publicly in January that I thought this was going to happen. Um, they have, you know, It takes a long time to prepare for this. You can't just go with, decide one day and happen the next day. So this has been happening for a while. It's not happening in other places. Um, but you're right, it seems mm-hmm. the, the impossible has happened.
2: Okay, Minister, we leave there for the moment. Thank you indeed for joining us uh, this morning. That's Fianna Fáil TD for me, the East uh, Thomas Byrne, who's the Minister for European Affairs.
1: Michael Reed on, on LMFM. LMFM.
2: Well, the price of everything is only going in one direction and uh, the price of coal goes up again from today. Let's uh, talk to Patrick Reynolds, who's uh, the National Account Manager with CPL Fuels in Dundalk, which is uh, one of Europe's leading suppliers of solid fuels. Good morning to you, Patrick, and thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. There'll be significant increases from today, again in April and again again in May as a result of carbon tax, it seems.
6: Yes, thanks for having us on, Michael. Um, Yes, unfortunately, uh, primarily due to the terrible events that are unfolding in the Ukraine, um, inflation is affecting the solid fuel industry the same as it's affecting other industries. Um, And we have an immediate um, price increase going into the market as and from today um, of €4.50 Um, per 40 kilo bag of coal Um, and that will likely also increase again in early April by a further €2.50 given the prices that we're being quoted on the international markets. And finally, you have the annual carbon tax increase that will be implemented from the 1st of um, May uh, of this year, which will probably put circa an additional 90 cents uh, on a bag of coal. So mm. there are some eye-watering price increases.
2: It's um, quite incredible. It's a 50% market. increase overall, isn't it? And there was a, a €3 euro increase in September, which people will be acutely aware of. Uh, but when we get uh, to May with that final increase, if it is the final increase, uh, which comes by way of carbon tax, you're talking about what, €23 euro for a bag of coal?
6: No, uh, unfortunately, I'm talking about figures in excess of that. Um, Currently, the average price for uh, a bag of, a quality bag of coal or smokeless coal around the country is 22, 23 euros. Um, You're looking at uh, another six to seven euros increase on top of that. So a bag of coal could be in excess of 30 euros. Um, by the end of April, beginning
2: of May. Right, and of course people will tell you they won't be able to uh, afford that. So uh, if they can't afford it, uh, they won't buy it and that will be very bad news for your business.
6: Yeah, it's bad for our industry and we, we understand that. It's what our primary concern right now is the 80,000 homes we estimate and the figures from the Central Statistics Office would suggest that there's an excess of 80,000 homes in Ireland that use solid fuel as their only source of heating or the primary source of heating. And um, we'd be particularly concerned for them because these sort of increases, um, you know, uh, make make coal and make their home heating, um, you know, almost Mm -hmm. unsustainable. So, uh, you know, to that end, we're calling on the government really to perhaps provide a subsidy of some sort or other uh, on the cost of smokeless coal, So that will cover everybody that's burning fuel in towns and cities and in in rural Ireland and would be in keeping with their overall cleaner air strategy. But to provide some sort of a subsidy on the cost of smokeless coal, um, as they have done with fuel on the pumps recently, whereby they have reduced the excise on the price of diesel. So we're calling on the government to have a look at that and to try and be creative in that regard.
2: Right, uh, and with uh, the likes of VAT, as prices increase, so do takings for the government, so they may actually be able to subsidise this without any great loss?
6: Well, they have the, they have it in their gift and they have it in their power to do so. As to whether or not um, they're going to do so, uh, that's a matter for them. I think they're constrained on the back side of things um, by some constraints that they have. Hmm. Um, from a European perspective. Um, But they do have it in their gift, if they're mindful to do so, to subsidise the cost of fuel. Um, there's
2: no doubt about that. Mm, uh, I think that European directive uh, that prevents uh, those changes uh, to VAT rates uh, is under discussion at the moment. That may change as a result of the war. It may not, but the combined VAT and carbon tax that is paid to the exchequer is around €8 euro a bag. If uh, the state was uh, able to act, it would bring that €30 euro down to that €22 euro that you're talking about presently.
6: It could, they could. It's, it's, that's in their power. Whether they uh, choose to do that or not uh, it's for them. It's not a question for me. Mm. Um, I would be encouraging them, as I said, particularly uh, in light of those uh, 80,000 plus homes that uh, use solid fuel as a primary source of heating, um, they to do something for uh, to subsidise their costs. Mm. Um, because it is, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a terrible amount of inflation that has come, has come along very quickly. Um, and there's nothing we can do and in the international markets, these costs have been handed on to us, and we have to hand them on into the, into the marketplace, unfortunately.
2: Mm. And I take it that people will see these increases uh, more or less uh, immediately. This uh, $450 uh, that, uh, is uh, being asked of merchants will be passed on uh, to householders immediately.
6: Um, that's a matter for retailers and merchants themselves, and depending on what stocks they have on hand. Um But I would say within 24 to 48 hours, given the run that's on solid fuel at the moment, uh, if you bear in mind that last week, um or in the last week or 10 days, the price of home heating oil has spiked dramatically. And we've had scenarios whereby some homes are ordering 1,000 litres of home heating oil, but only being only allowed to purchase 500 euros worth of heating oil or 500 litres. And those people are going on to purchase Um, solid fuel uh, as a backup. Then you have another cohort in society who can't afford to buy 500 litres of home heating oil at a time, and they're buying coal. And so there's something of a run on coal happening and a run on solid fuel happening in the Irish marketplace right now. And that means we have to go back out, purchase more coal on the international market for more raw materials, for smokeless coal on the international market. And that costs us more than it did we have to hand that into the market. So mm. uh, I think the retailers it'll be a choice for them, but they'll be left with no choice. Okay. Within within a very short time frame of having to increase the the
2: price. And that by May, as you said, uh, it could be as much as thirty euro a, a bag. Could it go higher than that, Patrick?
6: Um, well, I don't have a crystal ball, and I don't know what the international commodity markets will do or what will happen therein. It could, it could go much higher. Just like the price of oil, um, some people had predicted €2 Euros, um, for a litre of diesel at the pumps. Mm. Um, some, uh, some while back, other market, uh, market watchers are suggesting it could go as high as €250. Um, it's the same in the solid fuel sector. Um, I don't know where the price will go. The only thing I would say from a solid fuel perspective is we are coming into the summer months, and uh, the requirements for solid fuel will start to ease once we get into May. I should think. Um, And maybe uh, we'll have the talk this morning uh, in the media, from what I understand, uh, of some progress being made in peace talks around the war in Ukraine. And, you know, uh, prices could normalise, stabilise Um,
2: if we were to get a piece of cord over there. All right, well, difficult times ahead. How difficult, I suppose, is uh, the only question at at this stage. Patrick, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us uh, this morning. That's uh, Patrick Reynolds, uh, the National Account Manager with CPL Fuels in Dundalk. Uh, Thanks uh, as well to Declan, who's in Drogheda and uh, has been on the phone to us uh, first call in today. Thanks uh, for taking the time uh, to call us uh, and indeed uh, to share your opinions with us uh, this morning for that matter, Declan. He says how many lives will be lost before NATO steps in? There needs to be a response. We can't just watch innocent civilians being bombed and killed. It's the most awful thing to just sit by and watch this unfold. It's heartbreaking. It certainly is, Declan. and uh, I don't think that there's anybody who would argue with uh, the sentiment of what you're saying. Indeed, in line with the sentiment of what you're saying, we hear a, a little bit more now from Pope Francis, uh, through the voice of a translator from Vatican Radio, uh, giving his Sunday Angelus address uh, in the Vatican yesterday.
5: The city that carries the name of Mary, of Mary Mariupol, in Ukraine, is being devastated. In front of this barbaric killing of children and innocent people, there is no strategic reason. There should be just immediately a cessation of this violence so that this city will not be reduced to a cemetery. I unite my voice to those who seek the end of this war in the name of God please listen to those to the cry of those and let us put an end to their bombardments and attacks and let us work towards negotiation and creating humanitarian corridors for civilians in the name of in the name of God please stop this massacre. I would like again to thank all those and to wish for those who welcome refugees who are the face of Christ. And I ask all the San institutions to increase moments of prayer for peace. God is a God of war, a God of peace. God is not a God of war, but a God of peace. And now let us pray together in silence for those who suffer, that God will convert their hearts
2: for, towards peace. Right, uh, that's uh, some of uh, Pope Francis' uh, address uh, during uh, the Sunday Angelus uh, yesterday through the voice of a Vatican radio translator hoping that uh, the city of Mariupol will not be reduced to a cemetery and it looks that that would be a fairly accurate description of what Maria Pole is going to end up as, given what we are seeing unfold there, it's a non-stop onslaught. Uh, and of course, we're feeling it here in different ways. Uh, and uh, the coal, uh, as we were discussing, uh, the cost of it and everything else for that matter, seems uh, to be part of uh, the price of war. If you like, Seamus in Dundalk says it's getting very serious, Michael, when you see the price of a bag of coal going up by 450, just like that, and further increases likely too. How can people on a pension, social welfare or low incomes afford to heat their homes? The only saving grace is that we're coming into the summer months, but it's if it continues into the winter there will be people in real trouble trying to afford to heat their homes the government will have have to give more help to people. Thank you indeed Seamus. The reality of, the reality of this is that this Uh, could very well go on for years uh, and we could go from one winter to a summer and on to the next winter and so on, obviously. Uh, But thank you indeed uh, if you have been in touch with us uh, so far today. As always, we'd love to hear from you. I'm sure you'd know uh, the different ways of phoning, WhatsApping, texting or getting in touch by email or social media for that matter. Michael
1: Michael Reed on on LMFM.
2: DOCUS is uh, the Irish Association of Non-Governmental Development Organisations, an umbrella group, if you like, for organisations well-known to you like Concerned on Bosco Gold, the Irish Red Cross, Plan International, Serve, UNICEF Ireland, and World Vision. jane Ann McKenna is the Chief Executive Officer of DOCUS, and she joins us now. And a a very good morning to you, jane Ann, and thank you indeed uh, for taking the time to be with us on the programme this morning. We were just listening to part of of the Angelus address from Pope Francis in the Vatigan yes, and the Pope sounding pretty much helpless like the rest of us, and the world watches on as the blood flows in the Ukraine. What can we do, or what is it that we should be doing?
0: Well,
3: I think um, you're right to say that there's a huge level of... Uh, I couldn't I think to say frustration is, is is too much of an understatement, but I think witnessing the suffering that we're seeing on our screens every day and hearing the testimonies of people coming out uh, from Ukraine or indeed who have fled, um, you know, it's quite horrific um what they are saying in terms of what they've had to leave behind or indeed the journey that they've had to endure. And um with DOCUS, you know, as you mentioned, we're the kind of Irish network for all the international NGOs. And many of our members are on the ground there, you know, and um, I suppose there's two kind of crises that are happening. One is really, you know, for the refugees. So when people are fleeing um, Ukraine and have now, you know, crossed the border into a neighbouring country such as Poland, uh, Romania, Slovakia, you know, that there are reception centres there and many organisations like those that you mentioned um, are on the ground, you know, delivering those kind of acute needs that people need, you know, in terms of food, water, shelter um, and clothing. And then there's also, you know, the reality of um, people who are, I suppose, still in Ukraine, you know, and we've heard horrific reports from Maripool of Maripool um, that is very much besieged at the moment. And, you know, there's a intense difficulty in being able to get some of the aid directly to some of these besieged mm-hmm. cities, or indeed for them to be able to leave and for individuals to be able to leave safely. And I think, you know, um, a lot of the Irish NGOs very much are... Calling to ensure, really, that you know that those um, individuals are able to flee safely. You know that they are mm-hmm. able to move. That civilians themselves should never be targeted, and indeed, any civilian infrastructure, such as hospitals, such as schools, um, uh, you know, should not be um, the object of a military target. Of
2: course not. But at this stage, as things stand, that almost sounds like wishful thinking.
3: Um, It does, but, you know, there is international humanitarian law and, Mm. you know, I have been working in many conflicts over the last number of years, including in Afghanistan, and have been following Syria very closely. And, you know, we have seen that, you know, um, unfortunately, civilian structures have not, have been the kind of direct target of attacks. But, you know, this contravenes international humanitarian law under the Geneva Conventions, and the civilian infrastructure should never be a target. Or indeed, you know, it should not be only dependent on, you know, um, initiatives such as humanitarian corridors for individuals to be protected in these circumstances. However, you know, as you said, in, in, the situation at the moment, we've seen the hospital being bombed in Maripool um, last week. You know, it does seem that the rules of law are not being, um, are, there are rules of war and, and they're not being followed. And I think now it's really around, you know, clear humanitarian agreements in place to ensure that, you know, um, there is a safe passage route for those who are able or willing to flee and that that agreement is respected by all parties and I think that there you know there must be, it goes down to being advanced notice you know down the military chain of command but indeed to individuals who are in many of these besieged cities and um, you know where the communication power networks are down or unreliable that they actually can get a clear indication of you know when there is a safe passage to be able to go mm. and you know this is at a bare minimum which should be there. Well, and
2: absolutely and I don't think there's a person listening to you who would agree with anything that you've said Jane Ann but how do you get that message to the Russians or how do you get the Russians to accept that that is uh, only reasonable at a a minimum
3: Well I think you know as as in many of these circumstances it does come down to um, a political pressure and we have seen You know, Ireland does have a seat on the UN Security Council and, you know, we have a role to play in terms of, from this particular angle, looking at um, the humanitarian perspective to ensure that individuals um, not only, you know, can can access safe passage or can leave, um, but indeed that they themselves are not targeted. Like we know for many, and we've seen this in many conflicts, uh, where it's often the most vulnerable who are left behind. You know, it's those who are elderly, Mm. who are disabled, who are not able, you know, um to flee perhaps as quickly as others. And, you know, it is ensuring that um that, you know, all measures are taken to ensure that civilians are protected and are given that same passage. And I think that should really be one of the key focus areas Um, you know not only kind of in Ireland at the UN level but also at the EU level to make sure that we are promoting and asking for that as well. Okay
2: well there's peace talks taking place obviously we're all very hopeful that they'll be successful I don't think anybody is particularly optimistic uh, that uh, that's going to be the way it it turns out and this is a war that could run for many months many years even Uh, but even if it was to end now Given what has taken place in Ukraine, uh, given uh, situations like Mariupol, where the city has been flattened uh, and the problems that people will face uh, trying to return home, because there won't be homes, there won't be cities, let alone their houses. Um, uh, How long, if this war was to end now, how many years would we be dealing with uh, the uh, fallout from it?
3: Well, I think, you know, in in any conflict situation, and I don't think uh, Ukraine is unique in this regard, but, you know, it will take years not only to rebuild, you know, the, the physical infrastructure side, but the, the trauma that individuals have endured during this period, you know, will continue for years to come. And I think that that cannot be underestimated, um, you know, in terms of the supports that are needed uh, for individuals on the ground. And we see that, you know, for people that are, fleeing now, you know, who are um, you know, either in um Lviv or who have who've made it out of Ukraine, you know, um They have often left loved ones left behind, you know, um, they are, there's a huge level of uncertainty as to what happens next, where Mm. they should go. And, you know, this level of trauma does continue, um, you know, even after the fighting stops. And I think it is important, you know, we have, there are a number of aid agencies that are now, you know, they're on the ground. They are, you know, part of what you're doing as an aid organization is you're spending so much time talking with the individuals and really trying to understand What their needs are, you know, and really trying to understand not only, you know, what their physical needs are, but indeed what their mental needs are, and seeing how you can provide that level of support. And that's indeed what many of the Irish aid agencies are doing now on the ground in border countries, or indeed, you know, those who are, you know, dealing with a lot of the internally displaced now in Lviv and in other areas, Mm. you know, that have moved from other parts of
2: the Well, they were feeling safe in Lviv, or relatively safe, I I would have thought up to the weekend. Uh, Uh, and I imagine they were feeling very safe in Poland up to the weekend Uh, but there's no certainty about how this will end or where it'll end, what border it'll end at uh, and uh, how this war will conclude Uh, Have you any thoughts on how much this could escalate and how long it could run for? No,
3: but I think we can see, you know uh, for example, in um I suppose, similar tactics uh, from this conflict that we've seen in areas, um, including like Syria, for example, which, you know, the war in Syria is still ongoing at the moment, you know. And mm. I think that, you know, this, is, this has rumbled on for over 10 years now. And I think that, you know, we have to look and say, OK, this is where, you know, knowing um, what we know now about kind of Syria, we know we can kind of preempt perhaps what the the needs are, what the humanitarian needs are, how we can best assist people in these regards, but also from a very, you know, from a political perspective, what are the key areas that we need to really advocate for now with regards to ensuring the safety of civilians on the ground and ensure that, you know, the the, um the level of suffering really from individuals you know and and families and and those fleeing the conflict you know can be minimized as insofar as possible um and you know that there can be um they can get the support that they need um, from organizations on the ground
2: okay and there's many organizations on the ground uh, and uh, people can donate obviously directly to them as people have been or they can uh, contact uh, these organizations uh, through your website at docus. Jane Ann, thank you indeed uh, for joining us uh, no on problem. the program. Thank, you very, thank you very much. Jane Ann McKenna is uh, the Chief Executive Officer of Docus. Michael, Michael Reed on, on
1: LMFM. LMFM.
2: Now to education and how some children are being failed by mainstream education. The Children's Rights Alliance is calling on the government to take action to support these children. And we're joined by Julia Hearn, who's Legal and Policy Manager with the Children's Rights Alliance. Good morning to you, Julie. Thanks for joining us this morning. Tell us, how is it that young people are failed by mainstream education?
7: Good morning, Michael. Um, Well, well, what we know is that children and young people we know that one-size-fits-all in education does not suit them. And what we what we know is that 5% of young people leave school early in Ireland. And if you look at the more disadvantaged areas, that rises to 15.2% of children and young people. And to put a number to it we're looking at about 4,500 young people leaving school before the junior third. So that means leaving school without any qualification at all. And I suppose what we're looking at is the alternatives that are provided to some children around the country and that could be provided to more. So alternative education is really looking at responding to those young people who can't for one reason or another. And we heard at our conference last week it could be mental health, Mm. it could be anxiety, it could be neurodiversity, and it could just be challenges engaging in the school system, providing them with an alternative. And what these alternatives look like is they're generally a more informal, student-centred curriculum, and it focuses on supporting the personal, professional, emotional development of the student along with the academic. And what we know is that these... Alternatives can work for those children, young people who, for one reason or another, just can't engage with mainstream and are being failed by our mainstream system.
2: Nice. Four and a half thousand young people Mm. dropping out before their junior cert. I I take it that quite a a number of them are under 16. You're not allowed to leave school, are you? It's illegal to leave school before 16.
7: It is. And what we do know is that. That we we at our conference last week we did have two of the, two or three of the alternative education providers speaking at it, and we do know that there are some alternatives out there. So, for example, some young people who might leave formal mainstream school before sixteen might go on to what's called I school. Who do online learning which sometimes can suit children who may have high anxiety issues or they also do blended learning where children can attend somewhere local to them that isn't a school setting but offers them that alternative. And then there's the example of the Cork Life Centre down in Cork which was in the media quite a lot over the summer who provided different type of learning where children come into a centre and they're just provided with that one-to-one learning. Uh, we do know as well that Youth Reach is there and that Youth Reach does a fantastic job for a lot of children particularly those who are over the age of 16 in terms of progressing them on to education but one of the myths that are out there is that children and young people who leave school early, that they just can't, they can't learn and they're not good at learning. But actually, that isn't, that isn't true. We do know, and there's research on it, that a lot of children and young people who leave school early actually go on to further education and actually go on to be able to fulfil their potential. So really what it's about is about the government looking at what they can do to support these young hmm. people who come out of school early.
2: Right. Um, It's very young isn't it uh, to be leaving school uh, and uh, if it's not permitted by law is there any follow up or or do these children just leave school at 14 and 15 years of age or is there such thing as uh, the school inspector these days uh, who follow it up and uh, take whatever action is necessary?
7: Yeah, the education welfare services within Tusla do engage with families and try to, first of all, encourage students to stay in school and try to put supports in place. But sometimes they actually refer to these alternatives that are out there. But I suppose the issue is is that these alternatives aren't everywhere and that there are some young people who really struggle to to attend them. They might still be enrolled in mainstream school, for example, which we heard last week, um, and may only be able to attend one day a week because Mm. they have such high anxiety, for example. And really what needs to happen is that the government is sitting on a review that they have done of alternative education. So they've mapped what's out there. They know where the gaps are mm. and they know what supports can be put in place. But also there's things that mainstream education can learn from alternatives to try and help retain these children and young people. Mm. And it's about trying to get that published now that we can ensure that when a child as young as you said, as maybe 13 or 14, is struggling in education, that yeah. the correct supports can be put in place. They can be referred to somewhere that can take them through with their education. That may not be a normal mainstream setting but can still keep them in education.
2: Yeah, but what happens if, if they don't go to school? If they don't go to school, whether it's mainstream or they're offered uh, one of uh, the alternatives in high school or wh- wh- whatever yeah. the case may be, if they just won't go to school, what happens then?
7: Well, interestingly enough, we heard from uh, iSchool last week and they said they had a waiting list of over, of over 100 students was It was the year before last, and mm. got increased funding from TUSLA to provide services to those young people and still had a waiting list of 65, which they couldn't take on for capacity reasons. They checked back in with them a number of months later and over 40 of them were just at home doing nothing. Mm. So these young people are being left there and they're being left with nothing to be provided for them because there's just not capacity in these mm. alternatives.
2: There's a, a child protection issue there, isn't there?
7: Well, I mean, look, it, when it comes to child protection, the Child and Family Agency has to look at what's going on in the round. But I suppose there is an education welfare issue, yeah. and that's where the education welfare services will link in. They okay. can provide things...
2: That's what the I meant by a child protection issue, Julia. I, I mean, yeah. I, I think in terms of protecting children, uh, one of the most important things is to make sure that they get every opportunity in life that is possible for them. Yeah. And if they're not in school, uh, I think you've got a child protection issue, if that makes sense.
7: Yeah, I mean, there is an issue there. And we heard from the young people who've been through some of these alternatives last last week about the hope that it gave them for the first time. And what Mm. was really interesting is that a lot of these young people now want to get back into helping children, young people like themselves. And I think the issue is, is that often these young people are, you know, they're under the, the attention of the Education welfare Service, but there just mightn't be anywhere to send them that isn't a mainstream school. So really what we need to do is to make sure the provision is there for these young people, that they can go to somewhere that can help them get an education, get that learning and move them on to hmm. fulfilling their potential in life.
2: Okay. and, and uh, Should something be done earlier than that? I mean, I take it if you get to the stage uh, that you're leaving school just before your junior cert and you don't do your junior cert, that there's probably no prospect of you ever passing your junior cert, let alone your leaving cert, because you've probably spent very little time in school. Uh, that's quite often the case, isn't it?
7: Well, in what we heard from the young people themselves that we heard from last week last week was that yes they might end up leaving school but if they can engage in an alternative and often they come back to education later or they come back to education through, through an alternative or even through homeschooling in time they can achieve qualifications Mm. And that's the really interesting thing is that, you know, some of these young people may have left school, you know, for maybe a year or two because of their mental health and they come back into learning and they often can go on. We heard from one young person who's in college studying teaching, another who's looking to be a psychologist and another who hopes to go on to work in early years profession. So the the, the myth, I suppose, that, that I suppose that children young people can't learn is really not there. I think what needs to happen is that we need a child-centred response to when, to when children and young people drop out. And sometimes, yes, it takes a little bit more time but often they can come back into education and
2: fulfill their full potential Mm, okay and we have this iSchool model uh, as you say Uh, what is it that you're looking for from government is it more resource to be put into that or are there other models that you've been looking at elsewhere uh, that uh, could be adopted here
7: yeah, there are a number of models that are available within Ireland. and there, But I think the issue is, is that the government have to report on what is out there, what the gaps are and what provision needs to be made. And that's what we need to see published, because there are a number of different alternatives out there that will work for various different children. And really what we need to see is what is actually out there, what is needed, and then that provision to be put in place. OK,
2: well... I think there's uh, probably four and a half uh, thousand young people uh, who could benefit uh, from something that uh, was Mm -hmm. done for them. But uh, we'll leave it there for the moment, Julie. That's quite a shocking figure, uh, of four and a half thousand people dropping out of school so young on an annual basis. But thank you as I say for joining us on the programme this morning. Julia Hearn is uh, the Legal and Policy Manager with the Children's Rights Alliance. Now let me bring you some more of the comments coming to us today. People are very concerned, I think, about uh, the increase in the price of coal And of course, you add it to the petrol and uh, the price of your shopping, the groceries are going to go up uh, for that matter. Uh, So everything will go up in line and it seems as though mortgage interest rates could be increasing, rent will increase uh, and so on. But Anne in in touch with us about the price of coal, she says it's very hard to heat your home now as it is and people are, are going to end up living in cold houses. It's a choice between heat or eat, which is a phrase, a turn of phrase that has become uh, very well known to all of us, uh, unfortunately. Thank you for your call. Uh, to the program uh, this morning and uh, we've Paddy Duffy texting us today and he says there's one solution to all of our problems or at least to this one get rid of Putin by any means possible some people are, are suggesting that he has gone cuckoo no he hasn't he's just power hungry a power hungry psychopath paddy says like a, a rabid dog you don't negotiate with it you put it down very strong thoughts thank you indeed for sharing with them with us on the program today
1: Michael Reed Reed on on LMFM.
2: Now let's speak to Father Sean Healy the Director of Social Justice Ireland about how the cost of everything is going in one direction because of the war. Good morning to you Sean and thanks indeed for joining us. Uh, We're hearing this morning to expect it to be 30 euro for a price for a bag of coal Uh, and it's not the only thing that's increasing in price. Everything is going up. Uh, You've uh, some solutions that you're suggesting uh, to government. Two main ones uh, to do with the social welfare and tax credits.
8: That's right, uh, and I think there's a problem go, uh, here that the government is like not addressing very effectively, and that is that there's going to be a lot of poor people falling through cracks in the in the in the system, if you like. Uh, part of the reason is that uh, the core social welfare rates uh, were increased by half, only half of what was required to maintain the status quo in the budget of 2022 and before that, in the two budgets before that in 2020 and 2021, there had been no increase at all. So what we have is a situation in which the poorest have seen the value of the payment that they have been receiving falling further and further behind and their standard of falling and this I've, we've talked about this on the on the show before like right. this is a disgrace given Ireland's uh, Ireland is is one of the richest countries in the world on a per capita basis, but okay, take it from where it is right now the The problem we have is very much a, a one of income first of all okay? And th- that income issue needs to be addressed by increasing core uh, rates in social welfare by an additional five euro now. Not, right. next, not next November or uh, in the, or October in the budget to be applied in January of 2023. It's now that people are facing the the, the bills. Now they have to deal with the, char- the, the uh, huge increase in costs. And uh, at least the five euro, uh, it might not seem like an awful lot at one level, but it makes a difference uh, at le- at least it brings up uh, to what to, it brings up the payment to the level it should have been at yeah. before this crisis started in the first place
2: well, yeah, it would help uh, to uh, bridge uh, the gap between what was asked last week uh, and what will be asked uh, in May for the price uh, the second, of a, a bag of second, coal. The second mm-hmm.
8: idea, uh, idea we have is that, to deal with the working poor issue, or people who are very close to the poverty line, low pay. Uh, they don't benefit from the full value, an awful lot of them don't benefit from the full mm-hmm. value of the tax credits they're entitled to. So we're basically saying you should change the situation so that they are actually able to benefit from the full value of the tax credits to which they're uh, entitled uh, in other words the technical thing is making tax credits mm. refundable that's what they call it but basically it would put the balance of the tax credits into people's pockets again uh, and not uh, And it, 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 they, those are tax credits to which the people are entitled but because they're, their pay is so low they're not earning enough tax to have it written off against the credit
2: mm. it's a benefit that they don't get in other words that's
1: correct mm. yeah, exactly right. exactly okay.
2: Right there's a, a lot of challenges uh, and all of that might go some way uh, to helping some people but we're just going to see the cost of everything spiral out of control if uh, this war continues.
8: And that is that, that I mean that is absolutely true and I think it's critically important that we get a grip on it from the very beginning and um, at the moment we have some distance to go before we have a grip on it. Uh, What I think is critical in these kinds of moments always is that uh, government tends to go for blanket solutions and sometimes blanket solutions do the the trick. Uh, But uh, for example, the the PUP payment uh, was, was, was a kind of a blanket solution and the wage subsidy was was a blanket solution during COVID times. And those worked, actually, and worked very, very well. Why? Because they covered everybody involved. But the problem now is that uh, the the blanket solutions are missing some of the people. And we would say, basically, that blanket solutions, like we've seen twice already now Mm -hmm. uh, in in recent weeks um, with with government... uh, initiatives uh, we've seen blanket solutions to the cost of living increases but they're not going to protect the most impacted by rising costs because why they've not other they miss or give very little to the person at the bottom when you look at it uh, uh, when you look closely at um, the the, the uh, situation of poor people people on welfare mm. people on the minimum wage and you contrast them with people on 100 grand or more, you have to realise that there's complete difference between the financial breathing space that both of those have. Mm. The person at the bottom has no financial breathing space at all, and as we were just talking about, um, the financial breathing space, if they had any, was eroded over the last three budgets by the the government's failure to increase welfare at all in two of the budgets and to only give half the increase that was required to maintain the status quo in the current budget. On the other side... uh, the, the person um, who we say is on 100 grand, I'm just using that as a round number, um, that somebody in that space has more financial breathing space, mm. and and we have to recognize that. Now, that's not an argument for saying we should do nothing eventually for the person in the, uh, in the 100 grand, but it does, it, it, I'm not saying that at all, but I am saying priority should go to those who have no financial okay. uh, breathing space at all particularly those who are the poorest the most vulnerable mm. among
2: us Well uh, I mean as I say these measures could go some way to helping some people now but uh, in time if, if uh, this continues uh, it's going to do very little a fiver really will be chicken feed uh, because uh, I mean apart from anything else uh, you've got to look at uh, the resources of uh, the state and you've got to add hundred thousand five euros to that if mm. we take in uh, 100,000 refugees and straight away that's 500 Hundred euro before uh, you do anything at all as such
8: that's absolutely right i think i think it's critical that we realize that we're into a kind of a a different phase we're back to in in a way facing something like we faced at the start of the covid crisis Mm -hmm. and we should at, at that time on this program we had a discussion in which we were saying that what's required is that the government put the country on a kind of what might be called a war footing Mm. Uh, that we were saying that when it was COVID we were talking about we actually do have a war going on in in, in a a dreadful situation altogether with Russia's invasion and Putin's invasion of of Ukraine Mm. Mm. but the the bottom line in it is that to, to deal with this is going to cost a lot of money
2: Oh, absolutely. And, I mean, you look at the weird. majority of Ukrainians don't speak English. That's correct. I mean, that's, pod- that that in itself is us. a huge challenge. The challenges that uh, this country will be faced with as a result of the amount of refugees that we'll accept as a, a result of this war are going to be like none we've ever seen before. 100,000 people arriving all of a sudden who can't speak English uh, is an incredible thing. Uh, they'll absolutely. Need, they'll need school places, they'll need doctors, they'll Need, need housing. housing.
8: Need public transport. They'll need they'll need homes. school transport.
2: Mm-hmm.
8: Uh, like they, they, they need social welfare. Now, mm. how we deal with it? There, there's two challenges, it seems to me. Where do we find the money, and how do we act at speed? Mm. So the first piece is how do you fund the money? You find the money exactly the same way we found it for COVID. Remember, we have stopped borrowing now for the various COVID initiatives mm. that we had. That bring that takes twelve billion euro out of our bill, our annual bill. Okay? Now, of course that was mounting up on the side, you know, as a debt. But what we... I, I was recommending from the very beginning this is three years ago or two, two and a half years I a bit over two years ago we were saying what you need to do is uh, get agreement at a European level mm-hmm. uh, that this money can be warehoused in Brussels and warehoused uh, by the European Central Bank or the European Commission whichever is the most efficient at well, doing it at The time. European
2: Central Bank is reacting in its own way and I don't think it's uh, the way that you're suggesting or that you'd like it's going to stop buying bonds from governments and it's going to start. Start increasing interest rates, which is going to mean that people are going to be pinned to the collar if they're not already pinned to the collar, because they could see uh, their mortgage monthly repayments double in no time.
8: That's correct, at all. and I mean that's that is a. Uh, I, I, I'd have to say they probably you know the way banks work mm-hmm. it takes a bit of time especially central banks they can't react within 24 hours of something happening or whatever I think what they were doing and what they've, they've announced is what they were planning to do to get out to, to, to move forward from COVID but they had not factored in the war mm-hmm. so we, the war has completely changed and not just for Ireland but for right across Europe it's like it basically changes the dynamic but it also mm-hmm. changes the the costs involved. So, if like, think about it this way: you're absolutely right. Like, if you think in terms of 100,000 Ukrainians that come in here, we have to house them. Mm. Uh, we have to make sure they have enough income to live life with dignity. Mm. We have to find schools. About a third of them, or maybe more, mm. but that's say say a third. That's 33,000 school places. Mm. Now, you we know too well there, there aren't 33,000 spare places out there. Okay. Yeah. And there's nothing remotely like it. So we've got to deal with that. We've got to deal with healthcare. We already. There's no point in saying give everybody healthcare uh, access to healthcare, and then they can join the, the waiting lists and wait for two years mm-hmm. for the treatment. And that that's nonsensical. Likewise, trans, public transport. Um, first of all. Uh, where it is available, it's pretty crowded, particularly in cities, and then where it isn't available needs to be dealt with as well, because where you locate the the Ukrainians is very important, Mm. because they could be located in places where there, and there's a lot of places in uh, rural Ireland in particular where there isn't much access, if any access at all, uh, to public transport. So all of these things need to be put into place simultaneously, and to do that uh, we need a war, what I would call a war approach. Okay? And in that context, that means we can borrow the money and we'll warehouse it in the same way that the, the, the Brits uh, warehouse their borrowing mm. that they used in the First World War. And what hap- actually happened was it's only a few years since they finally paid back, in the last decade, that they finally paid back their debt, final, the final part of their yeah. debt, for, uh, since the First World War. Now, so that's the way to deal with it. Put it on into a long space and deal with it in that context. OK,
2: but we know that the pri- price of oil, gas, right. solid fuels, uh, and, and everything else alongside it is going to increase. If mortgage interest rates... It increase. Uh, and you'll remember back uh, to when mortgage interest rates were 50, 15, 15, 16%. I uh, do, I, I do. I mean, is that plausible? Could it be higher? I, uh, I mean, what kind of level of uh, house repossessions are we talking about? People being plunged into dire poverty as a result.
8: Absolutely, and I think there's a huge problem there. So, like, I think we have to look at it Um there's two aspects. Now, they're very interrelated, but there's the Ukrainian issue, okay? Mm. And we have all those things that I was talking about there. But there is the issue of the rising cost of living. Part of that was happening anyway, and now we see a huge amount of uh, additional stuff going on. And I, very interesting in this, I think, is, is like the, the society needs to have serious discussion about uh, how that those the, those kind of hits are to be carried and who's going to bear the brunt. And one of the things um, that uh, I have seen uh, very much in, in recent years is the fact that when you compare capital and labour, like the, the business. Business owners and so on versus the workers. The business owners have been doing far, far better uh, than uh, than the the workers. And an awful lot of business owners, uh, some business owners suffered very seriously as a result of COVID. But an awful lot of them, quite obviously, uh, did very well and that's an an issue we have to deal with and the only way that I think government can deal with this and I'm absolutely adamant about this is by having a a proper comprehensive social dialogue process the idea that in some way or other we can have a discussion about this in in a uh, so, so in some kind of uh, arena where you bring together a hundred people representing everybody in the country and in some way uh, that they make the, they, they can come to conclusions that we 'll all buy that doesn 't work at all. You have to get all the sectors of society involved. you have to hear the, the voices of all of them mm-hmm. and this government has a very bad record on that a very bad record. It listens a little to trade unions, not a great deal. it listens more to employers it, it started, like last week it was starting a dialogue with farmers and the first thing they did was issue a series of things and they got a flea in their ear from the farmers basically saying, you want to talk to us but you're telling us before we meet what what we have to decide or agree to. That's not dialogue, that's an attempt at forcing others to do your will and that isn't going to work in the 21st century in modern Ireland.
2: Yeah, but surely the options are limited to some degree and we really are only... A speck of sand in the bigger picture that is what's happening on the continent of Europe mm-hmm. at the moment and there is so much unknown and so much that is out of our hands and the discussions that you're talking about surely need to be held with other European countries and to see how collectively we can respond to this. Well,
8: part of the reason that we need to do a, a, a social dialogue in Ireland is to find out what our position should be. We never again want to see the nonsense, a repetition of the nonsense uh, that Enda Kenny went on with in his early weeks as Taoiseach when he went off to Davos and he said, every, in Ireland, everybody partied and now we all must pay. Everybody in Ireland did not party before the crash and it was not fair or just. That it, poor people had to pay back the banks in Germany and wherever uh, for issues they mm. had nothing to do with in the first place. So, like, I, I think we've uh, you, you've got to have a situation. The only way you can stop the nonsense. That sort of nonsensical, false presentation of where we are uh, and, and stop the consequence of uh, yeah. austerity that we got the last time. The only way you can do that is by involving all, all the sectors of society. And by that I'm talking about employers, trade unions, farming organizations, community and voluntary sector, and, and uh, the, mm. the uh, environmental pillar. There are five pillars there they cover most of society. It's not a big deal yeah. to actually talk to them, uh, but this government seems to be... But,
2: uh, Kenny, I mean, was, Kenny was right to some degree though. I, I right. mean Anderkenny was right to some degree. Uh, maybe you're right yourself in saying that not everybody partied but most of the country did party during the Celtic Tiger years but we were told to party by Champagne, Charlie and Bertie <laughs> and Co uh, because we were told that there would be no end to it and if there would be it would be a, a soft landing and many of us will remember all of that so well and yeah. how wrong they were uh, and that we had overstretched ourselves and didn't okay. realise that houses were being repossessed and so on. Then rules were brought in to make sure that that never happened again and there was so much objection uh, to the borrowing rules uh, for mortgages and here we are now facing into the real prospect once again of mortgage interest rates going through the roof uh, and people in a position where they may be paying 1000 or 2000 That could increase to 5000 in a matter of years.
8: And the problem with that like obviously is that the approach be, that that would envisage is exactly the approach that Enda Kenny and his government followed, an approach of austerity. Now, the main, the major, most major economists in the world now agree that was the wrong approach. At the time, we were saying it was the wrong approach. We said so to the government, we said so to the IMF, because we we met with the Troika 12 times in those three years, and we all the time banged away about this was the wrong approach. Because what you did in effect was you destroyed the basis for what was there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And you had to rebuild, we had to rebuild the whole thing subsequently. Austerity is not the answer at the moment, but we've got, what is the answer is having a, a, a fair a, facing up to the fact of the scale of the problem and a working out of all the various components that have to be put in place and then a rolling out of that and a resourcing of that with money that will be borrowed, mm. that we pay back over the long haul. It is possible. It isn't possible mm. to do all of this without pain. There'd be a lot of pain without a shadow of a doubt, but we could do it without the kind of crazy austerity yeah. or the mad inflation that is the real, uh, the real dangers, uh, to the future okay. and to the life of people. But there is generally. this
2: real prospect again, and uh, apologies for repeating myself and harping yep. on with the same thing about the war, but there's so much unknown uh, and we could very well go from bad to worse, and I imagine we will before we get better at least. Uh, and would you agree that there is a real prospect that we could be facing into a recession on a scale with that of the 1950s or the 1980s? Absolutely, that that is
8: a very real danger. And there's also a danger that we're going to head into the inflation type of thing that you were talking about, where where everything, inflation was 15% and yeah. uh, people's uh, mortgages were going up. Were paid, they were paying 15% and so on, uh, on on their mortgages. We could well be heading in that direction. What I'm trying to do here is to say we have a way of getting out of this in the sense of staying clear of the worst of it. We will get a certain amount of hits, there's no doubt about that, and the scale of them are not a, are not fully, we're not fully aware of yet, because we still don't know where this war is going to wind up. But, and, and, and the consequences for Europe of a whole lot of stuff, for example, the energy issue alone uh, is, is, is enough to sort of uh, to raise very, very serious questions about the future. But we've got to reorganize ourselves, and we've got to face that fa- those facts, and we've got to do what we can, not sort of re- Bring our hands and just let the thing happen, or not just make small, like, like what's happened in the last two attempts, a blanket solution, small blanket solutions that miss the most vulnerable in society. These are not acceptable ways to proceed. And the, at the problem I have, why, uh, why I'm arguing so much mm-hmm. for social dialogue uh, to be introduced, is that to stop the government from making these kinds of mistakes that they have made so regularly in the last decade,
2: Okay, we'll leave,
1: there for, oh. All right. we'll leave
2: it there for you. Alright, we leave it there, Sean. Uh, thank you very much, uh, as always, for joining us on the programme today. That's uh, Sean Healy, the Director of Social Justice Ireland.
1: Michael Reed, Reed on, on LMFM. FM.
2: It really was interesting listening uh, to uh, the Taoiseach speaking on BBC over the weekend about how Ireland is going to open up uh, to people from Ukraine. I think uh, we can all feel proud to be Irish because of uh, that, but a significant amount of planning will need to go into it because of the scale of the challenge. As we were discussing a few moments ago with Sean Healy, if you're talking about 80 or 100,000 people coming to the country who don't have English generally speaking you've got some very significant problems you're going to need translators uh, and so on uh, but then you're going to need housing and you're going to need school places you're going to need childcare uh, and this on top of what the country is already facing as a result of the war. But Ireland uh, will not be found wanting, as Michal Martin told Sophie Rawworth on the Sunday morning programme. We,
4: we, because of the temporary protective directive of the European Union, what Ireland is doing basically, if the Ukrainians come into Ireland, they'll have access to our social protection uh, income, uh, access to our health services, access to education. Uh, the right to work immediately, um, and, and uh, we believe that's the correct thing to do in the context of the worst displacement of people and refugee crisis since World War Two. Um, and um, you know, that, and speed is important in a situation like this. Um, and there's always a balancing. Of issues, But we are in, you know, we keep the channels open with our UK counterparts and Home Secretary and um, our Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, have been in regular contact. I, I met with the Prime Minister yesterday. He was, to be fair, the Prime Minister paid tribute to, to what Ireland was doing on the humanitarian
2: front. Right, that's uh, Micheál Martin, the Taoiseach, speaking uh, to BBC's Sunday Morning yesterday, and uh, we may hear more from uh, that in a few minutes' time. But let me bring you some more of uh, the comments uh, that have been coming to us Today, we had Frank Andrade in touch with us. Now, Frank says he's very concerned about a lot of things, including the war. The cost of living is rising at a rapid rate, and he's also concerned about the rates of COVID at the moment. He says the amount of people who have COVID is worrying Uh, Were we too premature to get rid of mask wearing Frank wonders it is a worrying time he says between the war the cost of living and COVID and he wonders uh, as well how our country is going to cope with uh, the 100,000 refugees expected to come here especially when our health system is already struggling. Thanks uh, for that uh, Frank Uh, I think there's an awful lot of COVID around thankfully. Uh, The difference with COVID now is that not as many people are getting as sick as once would have been the case. I think uh, the last figure I saw for ICU was 37 being treated uh, with COVID uh, when I think about 16,000 had reported uh, developing the disease. It's really a small amount of people who are suffering from a severe illness relative to what we've experienced in the last couple of years. Uh, we'd, Selena in touch. Thanks for your call to the program, Selina. She, she says uh, she wants uh, to highlight uh, that uh, the rise of prices in diesel and and petrol uh, are really uh, pushing people to the pin of the collar how are healthcare home care workers supposed to afford to drive their cars to clients in the communities we are basically working to fill the car she said thanks uh, for that selena of course it is uh, one of the things with home help you don't get paid to the cost of travel uh, as they say is the case with every job (laughs) but of course you need to drive uh, in order to go from one house to another and that's always been a problem and certainly I can understand uh, why you're saying with the increase in the cost of fuel that it's uh, an even bigger problem than it had been Patsy in Carrick thinks Putin saw Saudi Arabia planes obliterate Yemen, killing millions with people starving to death and the West not caring and thought "Hmm, that could do the same to Ukraine. Please God he's wrong and he gets his comeuppance says Patsy in Carrick. Thanks uh, for that. Uh, Somebody else in touch with us uh, saying uh, that um, they think that Eamon Ryan uh, is somewhat hypocritical uh, because he's the Minister for the Environment but has... Taken a plane, jetted off to America, as they call it. Uh, This is Anne in Trim, who says they haven't got a clue about living uh, with their big wages and their expenses and so on. They don't understand what the rest of us are are going through. Thanks, Anne, uh, for that. I think there's another side to that argument that it's a great opportunity to sell Ireland to the world at a, a time when we could do with a boost. St. Patrick's Day gives us that unique opportunity to make everybody think about Ireland as a great place to do business or visit or whatever the case may be and I don't think any of us would expect the minister to take the boat. Um, Let's uh, hear a little bit now about how this whole thing could escalate because, uh, as you know, um, we've had the attack on this military base uh, near Lviv, 15 miles away from the Polish border. Had that struck Poland, uh, you'd be into a very different situation uh, where you wouldn't be talking about the poor Ukrainians, you'd be talking about a world war because Poland is a NATO country and if there's an attack on one NATO country, as you know, uh, NATO responds and that uh, is at the beginning of World War Three, uh, And we're going to hear now from the National Security Advisor in the US, Jake Sullivan. He was speaking to Margaret Brennan on Face the Nation on CBS and he was asked, what if there is an attack on Poland or some other NATO country intentionally or unintentionally as the case may be?
1: The President has been clear repeatedly that the United States will work with our allies to defend every inch of NATO territory and that means every inch. And if there is a military attack on NATO territory, uh, it would cause the invocation of Article 5, and we would bring the full force of the NATO alliance to bear in responding to it.
5: But that's an accidental, errant shot?
1: Look, all I will say is that if Russia attacks, fires upon, uh, takes uh, a shot at NATO territory, uh, the NATO alliance would respond to that.
2: Right. It's not good. We're living through dangerous times, and I don't think there's any question about that.
1: Michael Threat Reed on LMFM.
2: Now, thanks uh, to Frank, uh, who is in touch. I think Frank is giving out to me uh, because of what I said about COVID. Uh, there's an awful lot of COVID around, uh, which is what I, I was saying, Frank. He says there's over 800 people in hospital, Michael, uh, and uh, I suppose there's no doubt that that is of concern. I think the reason why Neffet uh, do you remember them before they disbanded? Uh, the Chief Medical Officer, the Minister for Health, uh, and others are not as concerned about those figures is because a lot of the people who were in hospital being treated for COVID are in there for other reasons. And that if you're in hospital, let's say you're in hospital with a heart attack, uh, they come and they test you. And if you have COVID, you've, you, you make up those figures. But it doesn't mean that you're in hospital because you've got COVID. It means you're in hospital and you have COVID uh, and you may not be very uh, sick, you may not even be symptomatic, you may be asymptomatic, as they call it. Uh, I think what I'm looking at these days is the amount of people who are are very sick or in need of critical care. Uh, It was 41 people yesterday, I said 37, which I think was the day before. Uh, And those figures uh, are are encouraging, uh, especially given the huge amount of new cases on a daily basis, it has to be said. We're responding better. Uh, it seems, as uh, a race uh, to this virus. Anyway, let's uh, go back to the cost of living and the war and all that goes with that. And uh, it's hard to talk about one without the other. Anne Dempsey, Communications Manager with Third Age Ireland, which runs Senior Line, is on the line with us now. And a very good morning to you, Anne, and thanks indeed for joining us. Uh, We were hearing this morning uh, that it'll be no time before we're paying 30 euro for a a bag of coal, and that's before you get started uh, as such. Uh, They're very worrying times in uh, trying to uh, make ends meet, aren't they?
9: A very worrying times, both from a world perspective, Michael, and just what's going on in our own homes. Isn't that right? Yeah. Absolutely. And yeah. the whole thing yeah. about the coal, you know, like the, the, an awful lot of our callers and an awful lot of older people generally, they do use solid fuel. They use, they, an awful lot of people don't have central heating, so they're using wood, coal. Turf to burn at home, and uh, there's a there's a lot on the line at the moment by people uh, bewildered bamboozled, overwhelmed by these ever-changing increases and wondering how on earth are we going to manage? What can I do? I mean, like, you know, people are cut to the bone that there is a lot of our quarters on social
2: welfare, you know? Mm, Oh, absolutely. And uh, I mean, I think that's the thing that people couldn't understand uh, with the carbon tax. Uh, How are you supposed to (laughs) afford a heat pump or how are you supposed to do your bit for the environment if you've got a coal fire and you don't have the means to pay for something else?
9: All of that, all the refurb ideas, they're wonderful, but they're, you have to contribute so much to them, you know, like they're out of the reach of so many of our callers. Okay. Like we have. Like, in terms of older people generally, Michael, you probably know these figures, yeah. you said. There's almost a half a million, 400,000 over sixty-five in the country. Uh, and a lot of those households are headed by, headed up by one person. So you're on your own, you're trying to keep warm, you're not feeling too well, maybe. You're very, very worried about life in general. And then you get your bill or your back of cold. You go out, to, you know, and there you are. I mean, we've had callers telling us that... Um, going back with us over some weeks and months, Mm. and a fill that would have cost, uh, just people who have central leasing, a fill that would have cost um, 500 litres Mm -hmm. which would have cost about 600 um, relatively recently, uh, is now costing over 800. Mm -hmm. So it's absolutely...
2: I think you could have got it for 400 relatively recently and it's now costing over 800. Uh, It depends on on what you say is recently. There's 80,000 households in uh, the country uh, that uh, rely on fossil fuels to heat their homes so that's a lot of people who are going to face into very significant price increases uh, uh, as a result of all of this and it's not just the carbon tax of course uh, there's lots of other reasons And the war the predominant reason at this stage there is good news of course by way of the 200 euro off the electricity bills and from today 125 euro uh, being paid to, in addition to what's already paid in fuel allowance
9: that's right. The 125 uh, an additional fuel allowance, and that's for about 330,000 people in receipt of social welfare, and that will be very welcome. There's no doubt about it. And then the 200 for all of us, that will show us a kind of a credit line on our bill, and again, very very welcome. Um, but you know, sadly, eating bread is soon forgotten. You know, like it won't. It is great, and I think people are very grateful for it. But soon, reality, it, it will be overtaken by 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 cost, won't it?
2: You know? well, it looks that way when you talk about coal alone uh, but uh, yeah. of course it's uh, in line with uh, the other increases uh, from uh, the budget as uh, the government would say uh, but I'm not sure if uh, they can increase fuel allowance or anything else uh, at the rate that the prices are increasing because it, it just seems as though there's going to be no end to this until there's an end to the war.
9: No, I think we're going to be in catch-up all the time and I mean it sounds like a very a small offering but just getting down to where people are and what people can do like we can't influence big events i imagine that maybe to pray which and that's a wonderful thing to do but um we've been talking to our callers about again it's not it's a recurring conversation we have in the about keeping warm michael mm. about you know very cold weather can affect everyone but for older people a particular difficulty, maybe heart attack or pneumonia. Mark, yeah. I'm, I'm going to need to You need, cough. You need to a cough, cough. Just, yeah. Take your, a yeah
2: take, <laughs> t- take your time there. Take your time there, my God. Um, you're very good for trying to continue on with that. Uh, but uh, uh, it's the,
9: about keeping yourself warm yeah. it's about taking exercise and like again for an older person we can't be running up mountains, we can't be running frequently, well we can but to be careful of our balance but to get up and move around in the house you know, get up and stretch your legs stay active, wear several thin layers again this has proved that mm. uh, w- rather than one thick lever, so never mind your iron Gansey, you know, wear a number of layers to trap warmth in the body Um. And then if it can't heat the whole house, which you well, maybe can't, you know. Heat, heat a number of rooms if you, you can, have a hot drink during the day, eat at least one hot meal, meal a day. I mean, none of this, Michael, mm-hmm. is rocket science. but I, I, our callers find that when we kind of come to them with this clutch of kind of the do's, you know, they they, say, yeah, oh, I'd never thought of that. And they just don't feel, they feel a bit encouraged and not so alone. Mm-hmm. And there, mm-hmm. is, there are a few things they can do. Do you know what yeah. I mean?
2: Yeah. Well, you get a, a, a lot of calls, Uh, from older people and of varying ages, uh, from their 50s right up uh, to uh, very old people. Uh, I'm sure there's uh, some people uh, who remember the Second World War and who thought they'd never see war again on the continent of Europe who you've been speaking to and I take it that there's just a sense of disbelief that this is happening all over again in the first instance but in the second instance that this could be the last of all wars this could be the
9: Uh, This this is it. One of our volunteers in fact she's a a, a London she was born in London and she remembers the Second World War and she remembers being down in the cellars and the Bunkers, and it's so she's it's it's come back to her with horrifying clarity, you know. And she's one of our volunteers, a wonderful woman, she lives in Wexford. But you're quite right, I mean, a lot of our callers. Whether they remember what was or not, the the present horror is just, they just, like, one would put yourself in the position of these people, ordinary people just like us, ordinary older people, ordinary parents, or children, grandchildren. So, like, there's a huge identification and a huge horror, you know? Mm.
2: Yeah. 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 Take a look out your window and imagine the town being levelled by foreign missiles uh, coming in uh, because. uh, (laughs) I don't know. That would have been unthinkable three weeks ago in Ukraine. Uh, in,
9: exactly. exactly. And then you know, some of our older callers are kind of really relating to older people there and hearing stories of people, old people are kind of saying no, I'm not going to leave my home, I'm not going to leave my apartment I've lived here all my life and or I wouldn't be able for the journey. And kind of understanding that and relating to that and then, you know living the care see the actual heartbreak of a family that mm. maybe has to leave their older person. And then another where uh, obviously the, the generations are travelling together. So it's all so real for all of us, I think.
2: Mm, I think so, yeah. Uh, and I suppose we all grew up with her own uh, understanding of uh, the Second World War as something that was relegated uh, to history. Uh, There's been other conflicts in between uh, and so on. And uh, I think, though, when the Cold War ended in the 90s with the Russians, uh, there was a a great sense that that probably was it in terms of the threat to the destruction of the world. But here we are again.
9: Here we are again. And I mean, there there, there have been loads of small wars which are absolutely dreadful to the people involved and we know an awful lot about a lot of them Michael, they're unspeakable, but this seems to be of a different order mm. it, seems, it seems to be, you know it, we, we were in it from the beginning we're viewing it in our homes it's so, so much evil at its heart, you know and, and
2: can I yeah. just interrupt you because we're wrapping yeah. up and I want to give out your phone number yeah. which is one 800 91 those lines are up until 10 o'clock tonight 1800 yeah. 91 and Dempsey, thank you. Everything today. you want
9: to say. Thanks so much, Michael.
2: Thank you. bye uh, third day, We'll see you tomorrow morning at nine a.m. on LMFM. Good morning. Bye bye. The Michael Reid Show podcast.
4: Tune in weekdays from nine on LMFM. To contact us, email now michael at lmfm.ie.
1: Hi.